This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, farming, gardening, and food. On Monday, January 22nd, a relatively weak atmospheric river, along with favorable winds in the mid to upper atmosphere, combined to deliver a deluge to San Diego, with the city seeing 2.73 inches of rain in a very short amount of time, causing major flooding and destruction of property. I want to welcome back to Digging in the Dirt, Jeff Masters of the Yale Climate Connection. Jeff Masters worked as a hurricane scientist with NOAA Hurricane Hunters from 86 to 90. He has a PhD in air pollution and meteorology from the University of Michigan. In 1995, he co-founded the Weather Underground Weather Channel. So, Jeff, I'm watching all these videos on TikTok of the San Diego flooding, which is incredibly disturbing. I decided to bring you back to talk about it. This conversation is being pre-recorded, by the way, and we will play it back on the air sometime in the near future. So if you're listening to our conversation today on the radio, it's about two weeks past some of these events. So have you seen any of this footage that I've been seeing on TikTok? Yeah, I mean, cars floating down fast moving courses of water. It's kind of stunning to see in a dry place like San Diego, where, you know, they only get about 10 inches of rain a year there, at least near the coast. So, yeah, pretty striking to see that affecting San Diego. The one thing I saw was this one video, maybe you saw it too. It's the first time I think I've seen an atmospheric river because it's sort of these roiling clouds and balls of, of it almost looks like fog. But then all of a sudden it sort of bursts like somebody bursts a little balloon and it just cascades down. Is that what I'm seeing in that, that video? An atmospheric river is a channel of moisture coming out of the subtropics across the ocean, which is relatively narrow. I mean, maybe a few tens of miles in diameter, and it's got a lot of moisture. And then when that moisture hits the mountains in California, that moisture gets dumped out. And in particular, uh, you get, you know, convective storms, which I don't know if they actually had lightning and thunder in those, but... It sure was a lot of moisture, typical of, you know, what you'd see in a thunderstorm in the summer. And uh, yeah, crazy amounts of rain. I mean, that was their fourth rainiest day in history going back to 1850 and their rainiest day since uh, 1925. And uh, boy, they've sure have built a lot of parking lots and impervious surfaces since then. So it's no wonder they had flood problems there. Mm -hmm. that's what you're attributing to it it's like i guess it hits the mountains it hits the rivulets it hits the streams it goes into the rivers it goes into the washes and then all of a sudden there's just so much that it causes it to overflow into the streets and wherever right and, and then you have all these issues with flooding yeah i mean the issue with the rains there is they occurred in a pretty short period of time i mean they had over an inch per hour falling in some areas. And if you do get just a half inch per hour in that desert ecosystem there, that can cause flash flooding. So they exceeded their criteria for a, you know, a flash flood type event by a factor of two or more. And it's no wonder they had very destructive flooding. But it seems to surprise people still. I mean, the, the, you know, we're, they're talking about this and it's occurring all over the world. But it, why is it still surprising people that this is occurring? In this particular instance, the forecast was for a level one out of three sort of extreme event. I mean, it wasn't the highest sort of 
extremity that was expected, but it overachieved. And, and these things happen. <laughs> you get extreme weather events that overachieve more and more these days. And, uh, you know, we've had a record warm year this past year and ocean temperatures off the coast of San Diego were not at record levels, but near record levels, about a degree Fahrenheit above average. And when you've got a warm ocean like that, combined with a favorable jet stream, then you can overachieve. And that's absolutely what happened. Mm -hmm. So explain to us why that is, why this is the current year. When you say the oceans are warmer and it's, so what happens? Maybe you can give us a little class here about how does the warm ocean translate into the water going up into the clouds and then carrying, I understand then they would move, but how does this actually occur? So the warm ocean heats the air above it and air, the warmer it is, the more water vapor that it can hold. You'll, we will evaporate more moisture into that warm air. So that greatly increases your odds of a heavy rain event when you've got more moisture in the air. So extreme precipitation events worldwide are increasing because we've got a warmer atmosphere. And when you have a, an extra bump in that warmth due to, you know, plain old weather. I mean, the weather is naturally extreme anyway. So when you happen to get, you know, this long-term trend of warming combined with a natural, you know, variability in the atmosphere because of an unusual storm situation, then that's when you tend to get your most extreme weather events. Mm -hmm. So why does it stay up there and then move and not just come back down where it went up? You need something to lift the air in order to get that moisture to go out because the lifting process will cool it. So you need to get cooling. I mean, if if you're a, a warm atmosphere, you can ev evaporate a lot of uh, moisture into it. To get that moisture out, now you've got to cool it. And one of the main ways that you cool the atmosphere to get precipitation to occur is to have it hit a mountain range like you get in California. The air hits the mountain because you know you got a strong jet stream wind driving it, say. Now, when that moving air hits the mountain, it's forced upwards because it's got nowhere else to go. And as we all know, when you're climbing a mountain, it gets cooler as you get higher. So that cooling process will then drive the moisture out of the air because it can no longer hold that much moisture because it's cooled off. Hmm. You know, I read the book, uh, The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. It's an environmental science fiction book. And he wrote about this event in his book for Los Angeles. And, and in this book, I mean, in reality, it came in San Diego. I mean, this is like something that's easily predictable, I guess. Yeah. And the infrastructure in California is of great concern because they've got a lot of aging dams and levees there which really cannot withstand the sorts of extreme weather events that the new climate of the 21st century is throwing at it. They were designed, you know, with the climate of the 20th century in mind. So now we've got a new sort of situation where we've got to retrofit some of these dams and levees so that they don't fail at an inopportune time during one of these extreme weather events. Yeah, also, the, is it also the fact that we, we're probably going to have to reassess a drainage i mean i know out there it's decomposed granite most of california and it doesn't absorb water that much most of it runs off is so is there gonna have to be some kind of recalibration of what to do with lots of water yeah i mean you've got to use nature to help you out you've got to 
build back some of the natural areas with vegetation that have been paved over, uh, put in storm retention ponds, and you can do a, a, get a twofer out of this. You can help recharge your aquifers, your underground water sources that we've pumped to you know extreme dryness in a lot of places in California. This will help out the flood situation. So yeah, we need to redesign the infrastructure in a lot of ways. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point about the aquifers. So are some more areas more susceptible to atmospheric rivers than others? I, I've been reading and seeing reports all over the world, like flooding in Brazil, Ireland, Marshall Islands, California right now, and then Vermont. Recently over here, Vermont and and uh, Maine got hammered, Maine more because of the rising seas. But is, is there rhyme or reason to this? Yeah, atmospheric rivers are more of a concern along the western sides of continents. So along the western U.S., you've got a really long stretch of ocean upwind of you that's got a lot of warm water. And you can get, well, we call it the Pineapple Express when it originates near Hawaii because, you know, that's the subtropical source of that moisture. Also in Europe, you can get atmospheric rivers that take a long path out of the tropical Atlantic or subtropical Atlantic to hit places like, uh, you know, Portugal or Spain. They're less common along the eastern U.S. because the prevailing winds uh, don't take atmospheric rivers into the coastal regions so much. Uh, and you don't have a, a big area available of warm water that can feed the atmospheric river. I mean, sometimes, yeah, you get a atmospheric river originating in the Gulf of Mexico, but that's a relatively small area of ocean compared to, you know, like a thousands of mile long stretch of the tropical Pacific or tropical Atlantic where an atmospheric river can form that will impact, you know, the West coast of either Europe or North America. Mm -hmm. And in this recent um, stuff that's been going on around the world, is there any one thing that you saw that even blew you away who are probably a grizzled old pro at this? I mean, is there something that we should know about that, that disturbed you even more? Uh, it's kind of uh, as expected so far. I mean, actually, I haven't been that disturbed because in a El Nino year, which is currently what's going on, you expect to see extreme rainfall events in California. And thus far, we've only seen this uh, San Diego one this past winter. So they've really been doing okay. In fact, they're below average for a lot of their snowpack in the Sierras. So actually, too little water has been a concern in California this year. Uh, they could certainly use more rainfall in the Sierras to give them a good snowpack to help them uh, withstand a summer, which could be hot and dry again. Mm -hmm. I see. So I recently read that climate denialism is on the rise again. It seems that we just can't convince the majority of the people of the planet that the planet is warming and causing these issues that we see on the news just about every day now at times. I was wondering if you could talk to me about the difference between climate change and weather and why does it get mixed up so easily? There's an old saying by Ben Franklin, uh, climate is what you expect, but weather is what you get. So yeah, I mean, climate is weather averaged over a 30-year time period. And you really can't make too many conclusions about how the climate is changing without looking at a you know 30-plus year record. So the weather is naturally extreme. And a lot of what we see would happen anyway, as far as extreme weather events, because you know that's what the weather does. It's chaos. 
but you can start to use some of the tools that scientists have developed to look at, okay, what percent chance would this extreme weather event have occurred anyway? And maybe what sort of a factor a multiplier can we put in here to say that climate change made this more probable? So we've got a pretty good scientific uh, research tool now, which will, after the fact, go back and look at an extreme weather event and tell you what climate change did to make that happen. But of course, the fossil fuel industry is not interested in climate science. They're interested in profits, and they have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to maximize profits. So that means anything that threatens those profits, they have to do what is legally possible to make uh, climate science sound like it's not a big deal because it directly threatens their profits. And of course, the fossil fuel industry is the richest and most powerful business in world history. And they've got some very talented people that are out there trying to convince politicians, the public, that climate science is not what it is. It's a shocking number of people believe that climate scientists are not in agreement that human-caused global warming is a thing. And the agreement is over 99%. But the latest polling I saw shows that the public in the U.S. anyway, about 55% say that, okay, scientists are in pretty good agreement that human-caused climate change is happening. And that's a reflection of the power of the fossil fuel industry and their lobbying. Climate denial has been around you know, for decades now, since the late 1990s anyway, thanks in part to you know the efforts of the PR firms that the fossil fuel industry has hired. They're very good at it. It's to be expected that they would do this. I mean, businesses forever have been denying the science of anything that threatens their profits. I mean, we saw that with this uh, tobacco industry, we saw it with the asbestos industry, with the uh, 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 chlorofluorocarbon industry when the ozone hole got discovered. And all of these techniques have been honed by these industries to deny the science of what's really happening. And it's really no surprise that climate denial has made things uh, so hard to get through to people. In your opinion, the burning of fossil fuels, uh, releasing those gases into the atmosphere is un unequivocally the problem we're having with the, the rise of the temperature of the planet? Yeah. In fact, the science shows that a little bit more than 100% of the recent warming is due to human-caused fossil fuel burning, uh, which is to say that if we weren't burning fossil fuels, the climate would have been cooling. So, yeah, I mean, in the past, in ancient history, uh, there have been other sources of global warming, uh, in particular, the tilt of the Earth's axis changes the amount of sunlight falling on the North Pole, which will then cause alternating ice ages and warm periods. Well, that's not going on now. I mean, <laughs> it's pretty obvious that when you put a lot of carbon dioxide, a lot of methane in the air, which trap heat, you're going to get global warming. And it's exactly what we've observed. We've fingerprinted it. We've got uh, rock solid science showing that's the case. And we've got the largest and most extensively peer-reviewed scientific collaboration in history, the IPCC reports, which are cranked out every five or six years, showing that this is the case. So the science is irrefutable, you know, scientifically. Of course, the fossil fuel deniers refuted anyway. 
So that's where we are. And if we keep up on this path of using fossil fuels and to the great extent that we do, that we're going to get bringing it all back around again, these extreme weather events and even more frequency and more intensity. We have to understand that the current climate that we're having now with all these extreme weather events, that's not the new normal. The weather is going to keep on getting more extreme until we stop burning fossil fuels. And under a best case scenario, the earliest that would happen is maybe 2070. Oof. So we're really going to have to bite the bullet here. I, I think that we're going to suffer uh, some pretty extreme impacts to the global economic system that are going to trigger mass migration, uh, famine, war. All these things are imminent in our future because we failed, failed to deal with this problem and it's going to get worse. Yeah, Secretary of State Blinken just had a speech about it that and the fact that we're denigrating our soils <laughs> with through chemical use so i mean it's pretty interesting that there's a lot of powerful people actually getting on board with this notion that you're talking about yeah there's a paper that gets updated every few years called the planetary boundaries concept where you can say there are nine planetary boundaries of safe living that uh, humans need to respect and you just referred to one of them, the, the soils are a problem. And we've crossed six out of nine boundaries of safe operation of the planet. Uh, climate change is another one. Uh, acidification of the oceans is another. Things like biodiversity crashing is another one. So all of these things make it more dangerous to try and operate a advanced civilization on. And you really have to have that natural wealth to feed upon to make a civilization work. So we're definitely challenging the limits of the safe operation of our uh, planet at this point. Michael Mann says it seems to be more political at this time than scientific. Well, yeah, I mean, politics is all about power and not about common sense as far as, you know, trying to maintain your uh, your profits for the next quarter or the next, uh, you know, cycle is all that is important, it seems. And long range planning uh, to, you know, make it a livable planet uh, takes a back seat, unfortunately. So when I'm explaining this to people that I know and, you know, they're asking me because they think I know a little more than they do. And, you know, what do you think and how what is it all about? I tell them, it's, you know, the weather is is like we're having global weirding, I call it, because yeah. it's so extreme. Sure. We're going to always have weather. We're going to have summer. We're going to have winter. It's just how bad is it going to be? Like, could we have 30 feet of snow in some areas and blizzards? or And then we're going to have no water in other areas because there's everything has changed. And, and what do you think about what I'm saying there? There are some concerns that climate change could make winter Arctic outbreaks more common in some regions. That is something we're still researching. Um, but in general, the climate's getting warmer. So, you know, you're going to see less extreme cold impacts. But everything else, you know, you're going to see more impactful heat waves, more impactful droughts. And when it is fit for the atmosphere to rain, you're going to see heavier rainfall events because now there's more moisture in the atmosphere from a hotter atmosphere. So those three extreme weather situations are going to get worse. Hurricanes are going to see the strongest storms get stronger because hurricanes are heat engines and they like heat and you put more heat in the system, they're going to get stronger. 
And it's uncertain at this point how climate change is going to affect severe thunderstorms. It could make them worse in some respects because you've got more heat energy. But in order to get the most severe types of thunderstorms, you need the strong jet stream winds, and that may actually go down. So jury's out now on how climate change will affect severe thunderstorms. Yeah. But everything else, I mean, uh, you know, the, the stronger heat waves, droughts, hurricanes, and heavy precipitation events, those four things, now when you combine it with sea level rise, uh, that's going to drive a wholesale restructuring of our global economy because we're not prepared for that new situation um, as far as extreme weather goes. Sure. So uh, speaking of hurricanes, you think a category six or seven, something incredibly powerful is in the offing for the future? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've already seen the equivalent of a category six or seven hurricane in 2015 off the coast of Mexico. The 215 mile an hour winds of Hurricane Patricia were the strongest ever measured. And it's only a matter of time for we get a 200 mile per hour hurricane in the Atlantic. Uh, we came close last year, uh, Hurricane Lee, which uh, ended up being a Category 5, but then weakening before it came up and hit uh, uh, Atlantic Canada. At one point, some of the model forecasts were calling for that to be a 200-mile-per-hour hurricane. Uh, now, it didn't quite work out that way, but it's only a matter of time. You uh, you know keep rolling those dice, and you keep on loading the dice in favor of higher outcomes, uh, now, if you had two six-sided dice, it used to be you could only roll a 12. Hey, you can roll a 13 now, and it's only a matter, a matter of time till we start getting a few of those 13s, you know, category six type hurricanes, and they start hitting populated areas. So you're thinking that migrations in the offing, adaptation is more in the offing. Um, Jeff Goodall talks about the, that, and there's quite a few authors now are writing books about the water. And you think these low-lying areas along rivers and streams and coastal areas and even islands are more, in more trouble in the near future? And is there any advice you can give to people listening who may be living in those areas? We don't even need to talk about the near future. It's our, They're already in trouble now. I mean, we've got an insurance crisis in Florida, in Texas, Louisiana, California. These places are all seeing troubles with insurability because of extreme weather events. Uh, sea level rise is part of it. Stronger storms is another part of it. In California, it's more the wildfire threat. So yeah, uh, you've got to expect that there's going to be a crash in the coastal property market in the near future because of these increasing risks. Sea level rise alone will cause it. There's uh, The best book I read last year, which I highly recommend, is called The Great Displacement by Jake Biddle talking about the imminent uh, displacement that's going to occur in our coastal areas. I mean, we're going to see millions of people on the move in the coming decades from these high-risk areas because of insurability and because you simply won't be able to live there anymore. It'll flood too often. Now, it may not seem like a big deal when you get a high tide flooding on a sunny day along the coast, which is increasing rapidly right now. But if it doesn't happen to affect you directly, you're still going to get indirectly affected if it happens to cut off a road that you need to drive across. If it happens to affect a wastewater treatment plant near you, that now the pipes are weakened by it and you start getting sewage in the high tide flooding water. 
uh, a problem we're seeing a lot in Miami Beach now. You, right, Miami. When you get those high tide floods, there's sewer sewage in the water. So yeah, there's going to be a reckoning. And I wrote a post last year called uh, 30 Great Tools to Assess Your your Flood Risk. And I highly recommend that people go out and learn what their flood risk is. There's a lot of work that's been done showing, you know, what you should know. And, uh, well, FEMA can tell you how to floodproof your house, too. So I recommend that. Right. Do you think, like, raising it up is a good idea? Or is that uh, a moot point now? It might not be enough. Yeah, I mean, raising it up is certainly a great idea, and there's been a lot of money thrown at that. But like I was saying before, what you do to your particular property may not matter in the end if the adjoining area, which has the infrastructure you need to keep living there, is affected. I mean, if your power plant goes underwater or the access roads, you know, utility lines, that kind of thing, all these things are going to be impacted by sea level rise. And it's going to make it difficult to live in an area, even if you've got, you know, all the money in the world to elevate your house and make your house category five hurricane proof. If you don't have utilities and a road access to live there, it's going to be tough to do that. Sure. And save the beach, too. Like I this has come very personal to me. I spend my summers in Wildwood Crest, New Jersey, and there's a huge issue with North Wildwood, which has lost its entire beach. And they're trying to figure out. Can we put the sand back, which I think is just a nonsensical attempt, but they're also now putting in big metal walls and I don't know what they're going to do. It seems like it's gone forever. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, these sort of efforts are getting more and more prevalent and expensive. And it's to the point now where there's not enough money to defend all the portions of the coast where people want to re-nourish the beaches that are being lost. So you have to be competitive and uh, get lucky, or if you're wealthy, you're more likely to uh, get the money from uh, FEMA or the Army Corps to defend your property, just because you know the calculus is, well, we're going to spend the money to defend the highest value properties, and of course, if you're rich, you're higher value property. So this uh, exposes a social uh, justice issue where you may have an area that's not getting defended, where more people live, but they're poorer and don't have as much, quote, value because they don't have, you know, the riches. So they're not going to get that seawall. They're not going to get that birch, beach renourishment. And uh, moreover, we're having trouble with the, the beach renourishment issue because we're simply running out of sand. We've done so much of it that the cheap sand has all been already put on beaches and washed away. So it's getting more and more expensive to do that. And the whole system's going to break down. We just don't have enough money. We don't have enough sand. And there's going to have to be a retreat, managed retreat, hopefully. But <laughs> looks so far that it's going to be chaotic and uh, not very well managed at all because we're not dealing with the issue on a political level. What a mess. We're talking to Jeff Masters of the uh, Climate Connection. Jeff, one other question. What about accountability? We we talk about the oil industry, the fossil fuel industry, and they continue to do have their bad habits. I read something today where one of the big business sites where they recommend investment, they say, ah, ExxonMobil, that's a good bet. They're solid. They're going to be here for a long time. They don't even mention climate. Do, how do we get them to look at this in a serious manner? And do they get held accountable in the long run if this all goes to hell in a handbasket and ruins the planet? Mm. You know, I would have thought back in the day that the tobacco companies would have been invulnerable, but they got sued 
you know, the lawyers beat them. And there are a huge number of lawsuits against the fossil fuel companies that are in process now, accelerating number, just thousands. So it may come to the point where there's going to be a tipping point that the fossil fuel companies are going to get sued and lose, and they're going to have to pay for the damages they've done. So in the long run, investing in fossil fuel companies is a bad bet. Short run, yeah, probably good. I mean, uh, you can make a quick buck if you, uh, you know, buy some eggs on mobile stock. But we have to understand that if we're going to have a livable planet, we have to bankrupt the fossil fuel companies. They have to strand those assets, all the oil that's underground, all the coal, coal, natural gas. We cannot burn that or we will destroy the economy. We will destroy, you know, civilization. So they have to go suffer a collapse, these fossil fuel companies in the long run. Or, you know, it's mood anyway. We're not we're not going to have a livable planet. Right. So, They'll collapse in the long run either yeah. way. <laughs> yeah. So short term, sure. Go put your money in fossil fuels. Right. I mean, if you don't care about the planet. Uh, I personally, you know, long ago, uh, made sure I was completely divested from fossil fuels because that's one of the tools we can use to beat them. I mean, a lot of uh, work has been uh, done to pull out assets from fossil fuel companies. I mean, uh, colleges have done this. Mm -hmm. A lot of pension funds have done this. And it's uh, made a difference. I mean, I, I think that we're seeing an accelerating push towards fossil fuels being demonized, which, you know, okay, maybe you don't like that word demonized. You can hear the d defense of them all the time where people say, you know, well, they brought us great prosperity. And yeah, indeed they have, but it's time to move on. We've got clean energy solutions. We don't need to be burning fossil fuels anymore. Uh, it's killing 8 million people a year just from the particle pollution it puts out. So if we go to a clean energy economy, it would more than pay for itself just from that. Forget about climate change impacts. So the, the technology of the 1800s, as far as energy, is not viable anymore. We need to move away from it. We need to go to clean energy. We've got great solutions. Uh, let's move with that. And, uh, you know, this is 21st century. Come on. Yeah. And I always wonder about these oil companies. Do they have grandchildren and children like I do? <laughs> Don't they worry <laughs> about what they're leaving their grandchildren? You know, the psychologists uh, have something to say about that. You mean you can't make somebody believe something that they're the, the facts about a matter when their livelihood depends on the facts being otherwise. So there's denial. I mean, denial is a well understood uh, psychological trait. So I think that uh, that's what's going on. Mm -hmm. I agree. Thank you so much for your insights, Jeff. Uh, this is Jeff Masters of Yale Climate Connection. Where can listeners get more of your insights and follow you uh, on the internet? Yeah, I'm at yaleclimateconnections.org, and I write a you know regular blog on extreme weather and climate change. And uh, I got a <laughs> great post coming in today, probably. Uh, I don't know about great, but uh, sobering, talking about um, a recent study done by Lloyd's, the insurance giant, saying that uh, if we get a unfortunate series of extreme weather events, uh, affecting multiple grain growing areas in the world simultaneously, it could cause a three to $17 trillion hit to the global economy over a period of about five years. 
So uh, this is the kind of collapse I'm concerned about. And they gave the chances of this sort of uh, extreme shock scenario happening uh, between 0.3% and 2.3% per year. And those odds are going up. So I expect, you know, within the next probably 10 years, or certainly 30 years, this sort of multi-trillion dollar extreme shock event to occur. And we need to be thinking about, you know, how can I position myself so that I can survive that? How, how can I, you know, where should I live to uh, reduce my risk? So a lot of things to think about. And uh, certainly if you go through my old posts at YaleClimateConnections.org, you can see I've written a lot about this issue. Well, Jeff Masters of Yale Climate Connection, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, I, I'm sure I'm going to have you back again because this is not going away. Okay, Kevin. Thanks for a chat. You've been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. 